Well, I never, ever, ever um, go to Twitter for um, sermon illustrations or anything like that. I just don't, okay? However, I was on Twitter this last week. Here we go, first time. No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, and I saw a tweet from someone I, sh- I uh, follow who uh, listed a, a number of things, four or five things that are trending on Twitter. And then at the end he said, this is going to be a wild year. <laughs> and I thought, it sure is. And you don't have to be on Twitter or think that Twitter, what trends on Twitter matters for anything to, to see that, you know, we, we live in wild times. This is going to be a, a wild year. Um, and for wild times, we need strong truth. We need, uh, we need uh, truth that we can stand on. Not just kind of vague ideas about uh, God and salvation, but something solid to stand on. And so that's what we're going to have today. And I trust we get it every week. We're back in Romans 8. And um, this week, and maybe one more message, and then we're done with Romans 8. We come to a really, I think, a really important passage. Uh, just a few verses earlier, verse 31 of Romans 8, Paul asked the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? The person who knows, who truly knows, that God is for them, is unstoppable in an ultimate sense. Doesn't mean they won't face trials or difficulties. They certainly will. We all certainly will. But the person who knows that God is for them, and really knows it. It's not just a platitude, but they really know it. That person is immortal. The world can't touch that person. The devil, though an enemy, cannot overcome one that God is for. Even death, the last enemy, when it's faced, will be overcome by the one that God is for. So our two verses today, I think, help unpack just one way that we know God is for us. And it is really significant. It is enormously precious. Here's why this matters. And we'll see, as we look at these verses, we'll see uh, where we're going to go. But we live in a world that is teeming with accusation and condemnation. And every person... Every single person seeks justification. Everyone does. And there's a few different routes we can go to try to seek justification. We can try to justify ourselves and affirm ourselves and tell ourselves we're good and everything's good and so forth. Anyone remember here? I'm probably dating myself because I am older now. (laughs) Um, Stuart Smalley, Saturday Night Live. Anyone know that guy? Okay, I don't watch SNL anymore, but uh, back in the day, it was kind of, it's not funny anymore, I guess, but, but back in the day, it was kind of funny. Anyway, Stuart Smalley was a guy who, uh, he had a show called uh, Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And he would try to, he'd say, we need to affirm ourselves, we need to tell ourselves we're good. And, and he had this saying that went like this. I just lost it. Um, it's this. That's right. Thank you. I'm good. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people like you. Right? You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people like you. And 
So that's one way to justify yourself is to tell, just to pump yourself up and affirm yourself and, and tell yourself you're good and people like you and you're smart and you're, you know, all these things. And there are lots of self-help books that will help you do that. The problem with this kind of self-justification is that it will inevitably lead to either despair or blind conceit. It'll either lead to despair when you realize, I guess I'm not good enough (laughs) and I'm not a good person at least not in the ultimate sense. Or it will lead to blind conceit if you really think you are. And there are people in both camps. So we don't want to go down the path of self-justification. But we can also seek to be justified by others. And this is the trap of seeking to live by the approval of what others think. And others telling us we're good and righteous and so forth. And the problem with this, of course, is that if you're a Christian... You and I hold opinions that the world finds repulsive, don't we? Don't we? Is anyone with me? We hold opinions, and they're not just opinions, but you know what I mean. We hold views on things that the world finds absolutely abhorrent. And that's when the accusations are hurled. Think about the world we live in now and just some of the basic things that Christians have believed for millennia. Okay, think about this. Here's what Christians believe. Men and women are different. They have different natures. They have different roles. God made them with different competencies, and God made them to complement each other, not compete with one another. For some, those are fighting words, right? In our world, they are. How dare you? What about this? There are only two sexes, two genders. That was pretty basic until like yesterday, right? But now all of a sudden, you're you're seen as someone who is, you know, possibly ruining people's lives by saying stuff like that. Or homosexuality is sinful and must be repented of, including homosexual desires, like even, not, not just if you act on it, but if you have those desires. Or how about this? Abortion is evil because the sixth commandment says you shall not murder. These are things Christians have always believed. But if you believe them, and not just believe them in your heart and think them in your mind, but you say so, you will find yourself on the receiving end of a lot of accusations accusing you of all sorts of things, that you hate people, that you are a bigot or a misogynist or a homophobe or a transphobe or or unloving or a whole number of other things. But here's the thing. Christians have always been accused of such things. Not pray not transphobe because that's a brand new thing. But Christians have always been accused of things. The earliest Christians were accused of being pedophiles or incestuous relationships because they called each other brothers and sisters, and that just seemed weird. Like a married couple, <laughs> being a brother and sister in Christ. Early Christians were, were called atheists, of all things, because they wouldn't adopt or subscribe to the pantheon of Roman gods, but they said, no, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Early Christians were called disturbers of the peace. Right? It was Nero who blamed the Christians, for the fires that he himself set, which kicked off 
great persecution against them. It's those guys. It's their fault. Now, of course, it's all demonic. The devil is the accuser of the brothers, but he uses and, 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 and works through people. So, seeking to be justified by others is a dead end as well. There's only one answer to silence condemning accusation, whether it's our conscience that condemns us or the world that condemns us or the devil that accuses us, and it's this. It's what Paul says here. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. This is the only sufficient answer to our conscience when it accuses us of sin. God justifies. It's the only sufficient answer to the world and its accusations when they come. And if you're a faithful Christian, they will come. It's God who justifies. This is the only sufficient answer to the accuser of the brothers who accuses us day and night before the throne of God. It is God who justifies. So, to unpack these two verses, Romans 8, 33 and 34, I want to just um, ask and answer two basic questions. The first is, what does it mean for God to justify? And the second is, very simply, on what basis does he do so? What does it mean for God to justify and on what basis does God justify? So let's, let's look at the first question. What does it mean for God to justify. Well, it sounds like a legal term, doesn't it? And it is. It is a legal term. But it's interesting, the focus here is not on the noun justification, like we have received justification. That's true if you're in Christ. But the focus here is on the action of God. It's describing something God does. God justifies I wonder if anyone here has ever been in a courtroom. Maybe you were called to jury duty or you were for any other, you know, uh, uh, unfortunate reason you were in a courtroom uh, and you didn't want to be there. I've been in a courtroom a few times. I was on jury duty once and I was in a courtroom at least a couple other times that I can remember uh, for uh, hard situations. Um, And each time, the presiding judge has declared someone guilty. Well, actually, okay, the jury did one time. And then the presiding judge twice. When you hear that, that guilty verdict come down, it is a sobering thing. Have you ever been in one, a courtroom when that's happened? And the charges are serious, and the sentence is long, and you hear guilty as charged. It's sober. It's not something you take that, that's taken lightly. The times I've been in, in the courtroom, there have been tears that have been shed, great angst as loved ones said goodbye to somebody who they weren't going to be able to see for a while. Being, being pronounced guilty is serious. How much more to hear from God, the supreme judge of the universe, guilty? People will hear that, or I don't know if they'll hear those words, but people will stand before God guilty. But the good news of this passage is that if you are in Christ by faith, there is another declaration made in the courtroom of heaven. The judge of all the earth has said, on your behalf, or for you, 
if you're in Christ, the Lord of all the earth has said, not guilty, innocent, justified, righteous. That's what's in view here. It is God who justifies. When Paul says those words, it's God who justifies. He's referring to the divine declaration from God of your legal status before him. Righteous, just. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but many, many years ago I heard somebody say, to be justified before God means for God to now treat us just as if we've never sinned. Have you ever heard that before? And that is glorious news. But actually, in some years after that, I, I realized, but it, it, that's good news, praise God. But it's actually more than that. To be justified is for God to treat us just as if we had always obeyed because we are connected to Christ who obeyed on our behalf. And his righteousness has been counted as ours when God declares us justification, justified. This legal status of justification, when God says justified, it is once for all. It's not a process. It's not something that you become more and more justified over time. It is a once for all declaration from God of our righteousness in Christ. And it comes immediately upon believing in him. Our conscience may accuse us. The world may hurl accusations at us saying, you are the problem. The devil may load us down with accusations, but here's the question. What does God say? What does God say? What God says can silence the accuser. God's declaration of justified is a final, once-for-all declaration, which is why Paul asks the next question, who can condemn? He says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring an accusation that can stick against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, the answer is nobody. Nobody. This takes us back to Romans 8.1, this verse that many of us know so well. There is therefore now, how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So who can condemn? Who will condemn? Nobody. Nobody can condemn us in the courtroom of heaven because God is the one who justifies. Now some would say that that kind of security, that once-for-allness of justification or of salvation is the surest path to complacency and license, like what I mean by license is living, just license to sin or go on living in worldliness. And I would argue, and I think the Bible argues as well, that it is assurance, security in Christ that actually fuels a life of holiness and sacrificial love. And I want to make that argument later, okay? That it's, it's, it's that security in Christ that I am justified, I'm forgiven, I am his now and forever that actually fuels a life of holiness and a life of sacrificial love. And this leads to the next question. So what does it mean 
for God to justify it is God making a declaration, you are righteous, you are just in Christ. So on what basis does God declare someone justified? When I was in a courtroom a few different times, it always included evidence, right? Evidence was brought forth. So what is the basis? What is the evidence for our justification from God? On what basis does God justify? Paul tells us in verse 34, Christ, Jesus, is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. On what basis can you and I stand before God justified? Not on the basis of your work. Not on the basis of what you do. This is the fundamental difference that really came to the fore during the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches that someone is infused with the grace of justification in baptism. So they baptize infants, they're infused with that grace of justification, but then that individual would need to keep himself or herself in that state of justification. And the way they do that is with all the sacraments. Okay? So they, they, confess, they go and get absolution from sins by confessing them to a priest and they do their Hail Marys and, and they go to Mass as often as they possibly can and so forth and all of that. And so if you committed sin, which we all do, you would need to get yourself back into that state of justification. But the problem with that is, how would you ever know if you've done enough? How would you ever know if you've confessed every last sin that might be hidden in some nook and cranny in your heart? Or that you've gone to Mass enough? Or that you have, you name it. How would you ever know if you've done enough? Paul here turns us away from ourselves to Christ and what he's done. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So God's declaration that you are righteous, that you are justified, is not on the basis of what you do. He doesn't turn us in on ourselves to try to look for the, the, the right um, ingredients in us to justify us or to keep us justified. It is God who justifies on the basis of what Christ has done. So hear these words again. Christ Jesus, actually, let me just say the whole, the whole passage. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? What is condemnation? It is an accusation that brings us down, right? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul turns us away from ourselves and he turns us to Christ and what Christ has done on our behalf. Paul lays out four things here. He says Christ died. Second, he rose. Third, he ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father. And fourth, he intercedes. There's a kind of order here and I, and I don't mean merely sequential, although there is that, right? He had to, He had to die before he could rise. And he had to rise from the dead before he could ascend. 
And now that he's ascended, he can intercede. So there is sequence, but I think there's even more than that. I think one truth builds on what came before. There is, there's this kind of cumulative effect that these four things give us that's meant to give us, brothers and sisters, hear me, it's meant to give us this rock-solid assurance that if you are trusting in Christ, that you are justified, and thus God is for you. We sing a song, um, heaven came down, that's right. And there's this last verse that I think Luke added maybe like four or five years ago. We used to not sing it before that. But it says this, justified fully through Calvary's blood. Oh, what a standing is mine. Now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. And it's because of that wonderful day when at the cross I believed. Riches eternal and blessings supernal from his precious or his gracious hands I've received. But those first words, what a standing is mine because we're justified fully through Calvary's blood. Well, let's look at each one of these, these four statements that Paul makes that's meant to be this, uh, right, we accumulate these things to give us an immovable, rock-solid foundation for our standing before God. The first thing he says is Christ Jesus is the one who died. Notice the finality of that statement. Who can condemn? Jesus Christ died. He's the one who died. You deserve to die. He didn't, but he did it for you. What accusation or condemning charge could actually stick and sink us? Ask that question. What accusation could actually stick and sink us? The only accusation and condemning charge that can stick against us in the courtroom of heaven and actually sink us are ones connected with unforgiven sin. That's it. And Jesus either died for all of your sins or he didn't die for any of them. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. The finality of the death of Christ and the accomplishment of it is drawn out here. What were his final words on the cross according to John 19.30? It is finished. It is finished. What's finished? What's finished? Payment for sin. Paid in full. That's what the word means. Tetelestai. Paid in full. The payment was made in full. If you are in Christ, he didn't leave anything unpaid for you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. There's no other sacrifice to be made. The price has been paid in full. And this is the witness we see throughout the New Testament. Paul belabors this point in the book of Romans. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. The writer of Hebrews, which may have been Paul, I don't know, said this, Christ had appear, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all, Christ died. So if you are in Christ, which one of your sins is unforgiven and thus 
you'll be condemned for? None of them. None of them. Because Jesus Christ died. But Paul goes on and he says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Of course, we understand this is referring to the resurrection of Jesus, but why does it say more than that? More than that, he was raised. I think it's because the resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates his death showing that it was a sufficient offering for sin. So there's this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is he's making this point that if, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we have no hope. Okay, So the death of Jesus, if he supposedly died for our sins but then stayed in the grave, it's null and void. It doesn't matter. He's just a martyr. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But Christ has been raised. That's the point Paul makes. Christ, not only has he died, more than that, he has been raised. And then Paul goes on and says this, he's also at the right hand of God. This speaks, of course, of the position of honor and complete authority, not only as our sin bearer, but as our enthroned king. The lamb has conquered and the lamb has been exalted and he now sits at the father's right hand in the place of supreme authority. After he rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he disappeared out of their sight and went up and was enthroned at the father's right hand hand. But Paul goes on. He doesn't end there. He died. He was raised. He's at the right hand of the Father. And I think this last one, actually, it's one that's often overlooked. The last three years, Ascension Day has come and gone. I'm like, oh man, I really wanted to talk about the Ascension today. (laughs) And I didn't. Hopefully this year, I will. This last one is often overlooked. What is Jesus doing now? Now, you might notice all the, the first three, it's all things that have been done. Christ died. That's in the past. He's been risen. He's been raised. That's in the past. He is now seated at the Father's right hand. That happened at a particular time. He was seated. This last one tells us something he's doing. What is he doing? He's interceding for us. The Lord of glory, the one who died for us, our high priest who loves us, the one who is raised victorious over the grave, the one who's enthroned. He is not so high and mighty on his throne that he's forgotten about us. No, no, no. In fact, he ever lives, Hebrews 7, 25 says, to make intercession for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Who indeed is interceding for us. He prays for us. Jesus Christ stands in the most holy place on our behalf and intercedes for us. Now we sing some rich lyrics that exalt this glorious truth. And I just thought of a couple yesterday songs that we sing. And I hope we sing these. Now maybe, maybe you already do, but I hope we sing these with a new spiritual zest and 
faith and fervor next time we sing them. One is come ye sinners. Listen to these words. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture holy, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Venture on him, venture completely, venture fully on him, and let no other trust intrude. I love that. Isn't that amazing? He pleads the merit of his blood. He's at the Father's right hand. Right now, pleading the merit of his blood, the sufficiency of his blood for us. Now, listen, if you say, yeah, but I'm weak and I still struggle with sin sometimes, I, that's, that's the reason why this is great news. It's because he's there for us, pleading the merits of his blood. And then I love this venture on him. Venture completely and let no other trust intrude. Let no other trust intrude. Let no other false savior get in the way between you and your high priest who stands in heaven on your behalf. The song before the throne of God. The whole song's about this. <laughs> but I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna mention the first verse. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That last line, just this morning, I was thinking about that. While he stands in heaven interceding for us, no one, no one can say, you have no business being a Christian because it's not dependent ultimately upon us. It is on Christ. And while he stands there interceding for us, no one can cast us away. No condemnation, no accusation can stick in the courtroom of heaven against us. Hebrews 7.25, I mentioned this earlier, but Christ says Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Maybe some translations say completely or fully. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to intercede. Jesus is not taking a nap, right? He, 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 sit, he has sat down at the Father's right hand. The, the payment for sin is done, right? He sat down, but he is in the presence of the Father interceding for his beloved people. One thing that's drawn out in each of in these two hymns that I mentioned, and, and I could mention others, but also our text and also Hebrews 7.25 it, it, it's meant, here's what it's meant to do. It's meant to point us away from ourselves and our work and point us to Christ and his for our standing before God. It's God who justifies. 
It's, the God, it's God who says just, righteous. And on what basis? Because Christ died and Christ rose and Christ ascended and Christ inter- intercedes. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I mean, here's the link, okay? Here's the link. I don't want to make it sound like it doesn't matter, you know, what you think about this. I'm not a universalist. We shouldn't be. We're not, okay? But here's the link. It's faith. The link is faith. Do you believe this? If you believe this, then you can rest confidently in the Lord. See, here's, I think, sometimes what we do with faith is we think faith, we're like, okay, I need to have faith, I need to have faith, I need to have faith. The strength of your faith is dependent upon its object. Okay, what do you, what's your faith in? And sometimes what we do is we, we think faith is this force that rises out from within us. And so we look within. And I think we're being told and beckoned to look away from ourselves and look to Christ and have our faith soar as we behold him and what he's done, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession on our behalf. It's, uh, well, we're starting to go through Hebrews 11, and I think we're going to, on Saturday morning with the men's group, and yesterday we just started off covering the first six verses, and I think we're going to go through the first a few verses of Hebrews 12 because it's so fitting you get to the end of Hebrews 11, this chapter of faith, and, um, and you get to Hebrews 12, 1, and it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run the race with endurance that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. That's where That's where we find our faith strengthened. We look to the one who authored it and the one who will complete it. So, it is God who justifies. He declares those who trust Christ, simple faith, he declares them righteous, just. On what what behalf, I'm sorry, uh, on what basis, what Christ has done. Now, I do want to end with this. What, what difference does this make? What difference does this make in our lives? Or would this make in our lives as we embark on 2024 and who knows exactly what this year holds? But what difference would it make in our lives if we were more grounded in this? And I don't want to make it sound like we're grounded and never have to come back and remind ourselves we do often. But if we were more grounded in this, what difference would it make? I do have um, four or five things I, I might cover as time permits, but I'll get through these quick. The first is this. It is fuel for obedience. It is fuel for obedience. God's grace in justifying us is fuel so that our obedience flows from being accepted in Christ rather than obedience being a means of gaining acceptance from God? Does that make sense? So it's, it, 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 our obedience is to flow from forgiveness and justification and not trying to get justified by our obedience. In fact, that, that's, a, that's a really dangerous 
path to be on. Um, obedience is super important, right? If someone says obedience doesn't really matter, uh, you know, because grace is awesome or whatever, I mean, that person is probably revealing they don't um, really understand the Christian life and maybe they're not a Christian. But the root of obedience is all important. The root of obedience is all important. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I think, that if you think you can be justified by obedience to God's commands, you nullify the cross of Christ. Think about that. You, you can get right with God through your adherence to what God tells you, to, the commands God gives. You nullify the cross. What do we need the cross for then? The root of, of Christian obedience is justification. We obey as justified men and women, boys and girls, fully accepted by God, and we pursue obedience from there. And we find that this grace of justification, of being justified before God, is like this jet fuel that thrusts us forward. So it's fuel for obedience. Here's something else that, here's another thing that this, another way this would impact us is it would make us more bold and guilt-free in our lives. Proverbs 28.1 says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. I love that verse. I've been challenged by that first part too. The wicked flees when no one pursues. Ever just thought of like, why am I so fearful? This is like make-believe. No one's even after me. Why am I scared right now? The righteous, however, are as bold as a lion. What is boldness needed for? Boldness and courage is needed for battle. It's needed for Christian lives, Christian living as faithful ambassadors of God's kingdom in hostile territory. And I think we all recognize we are in hostile territory. But we want to be faithful envoys of God's kingdom. And so we need this kind of courage. Well, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Knowing that God's verdict over your life is justified in Christ can embolden you to take the arrows of accusation that are sure to come to faithful men and women in a society going off the cliff. It'll, it'll make you strong to take those accusations. Now we want to make sure the accusations aren't true, that we're not really all these things that people might say you are. But it gives us the strength to take those accusations because we know what God says. Remember, the most important thing is not what your neighbor says. Not being on the right side of history according to whoever. Okay? The most important thing is not what your friends say or your coworkers or your children or your parents or... Um, a boss or a classmate or a governor or a president. What is most important is what does God say? And it is God who justifies. If you're in Christ, it is God who justifies you. Number three, this truth can make you bold and fearless in death. I can't imagine how um, intellectually, I'm I'm sure that I've, anyways, I won't go there. Um, 
Approaching death, focusing on what, you, on what we have done, is a devastating way to approach death. Counting up all the good things we've done, all, whatever, I mean, even truly good things. It's just not what you want your focus to be on. It's devastating, I think, if you recognize what a fool's errand it is. They can't. Like, it's not going to help present you to God in a, an acceptable fashion. But I think it's also delusion if you think that somehow it will um, make you acceptable to God. But what bold confidence you and I can have when we're looking to Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession on our behalf, his ability to keep us in his, inter- in his intercession, we can have confidence in. I know that while in heaven he stands. Is he standing in heaven? He is. No tongue can bid me thence depart, even on my deathbed. J. Gresham Machen was an important 20th century theologian who the last thing that's recorded that he ever wrote or said was a note he wrote. I think it was a telegram or telegraph. um, But it was a note to a friend saying this, I am so thankful for the righteousness of Christ. There is no hope without it. And you like what he's saying is he stands before God on the basis of what Christ has done. His righteousness, not our own. And as your pastor, I want to give you the promise and assurance that I want to help you when the time comes to die bold and fearless because this is your anchor. This is your anchor not church attendance or how many times you read through the Bible or a whole host of other things that are good things. But this is your anchor. Number four, this truth can make you bold in prayer. How can we ever approach the throne of grace with confidence unless we're approaching it through Christ and what he's done? We're told, we're commanded to to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4. We're we're commanded to do so. Let us do it. Let's do it. How could we ever do that? If you look at the context there, the point is we have such a glorious high priest that we may. I mean, and the point is to help us in time of need. Mercy and grace. When do we need that? Well, sometimes we need it when we sin. And how could we ever come boldly to the throne of grace? If my boldness was primarily, and I get, we, we understand that, that sin does something, right? unrepented sin, all that. But how could I ever come boldly to God if it was mainly dependent upon how good I've done today? how my morning devotions went, or anything like that. It's not dependent upon those things. That's what makes us bold in prayer. And finally, here's the last thing. What can this do for us? It's a strong binding agent for a church. And I get this from the last word in verse 34. What does it say? Get your bulletin. 
What does it say? Us. There's a corporate identity here. Who is the us? Well, it's referred to earlier in verse 33 as God's elect, God's chosen ones, the saints, the church, those who are united to Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So it's not just that you, it's not just that I get to enjoy this wonderful reality of being justified individually and you get to enjoy it individually and we have a whole bunch of individuals here that love this truth for our own private devotion and um, you know, that sort of thing. We are a justified people. Many years ago, and I can't remember, I want to say it was John Piper, but I can't remember for sure. But he talked about this truth of justification. What, how would it impact your marriage if you saw, obviously he's talking about Christian marriage, but not perfect people, right? There are, there are none, of, none of those. How would it impact your marriage if you viewed your wife or your husband as justified, declared righteous by God on the basis of what Christ has done. Well, how would it impact us? If we had this understanding, this this corporate identity, we are a justified people. It would be immense and glorious. I mean, it is immense and glorious, but the more we are grounded and rooted in this, it would just explode with glory and joy in our midst. Well, I'm going to wrap up here. Um, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Ground it deeply into our hearts. Father, I pray for your glory and for our good and may we be um, deeply uh, impacted. May we be sanctified by this truth today. Your word is truth in Jesus' name.